Hello, and welcome to This is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow, and you are listening to May 1990. I am joined today by my good friend Jim Delphine, a self-proclaimed child of the 90s. That is my area of expertise. Hello, listeners. Yeah, welcome. Thanks. Yeah, May 1990. Is that doing anything for you? It's fifth grade. Okay. In 1990. (laughs) A lot of memories. Turns out it was kind of a momentous year. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie came out. Okay, that was a big one. It was a big one. Uh, I was a Donatello man myself. I mean, Raph. Really? Well, I mean, he was. Oh. He had the edge. He did. Well, yeah. Donatello had that, the bow that staff. That tells me a lot about you. It's who I aspire to be, not necessarily who I am. Okay. I feel like that, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we can just move on to the charts. Do you okay. want to talk about them? Sure. In May 1990, we have three songs that hit number one. And we're going to talk about all three of those, but I just thought I'd mention a few things that popped up that we're not going to hear today. Red Hot Chili Peppers are making an early appearance with the song Show Me Your Soul. This was on which Chili Peppers album? It actually appears in the soundtrack to the movie Pretty Woman, which happens to be the number one movie in America for most of May 1990. Fun. But no, I don't remember that song at all. No. What else have we got? The Cure... Pictures of You hits number 19. And uh, Billy Idol's on there at number seven with Cradle of Love. Okay. I have a question for you. Yeah. Cradle of Love was a phenomenon on MTV. So I've heard. If I remember correctly, this was a sexy video. Mm -hmm. The other singles that you mentioned seem to me in my recollection to be college rock. There is some serious music out there, uh-huh. and we're going to be listening to some serious music today. Yep. Um, but there's also crossover. So Cradle of Love was a number one mainstream rock hit okay, and a number seven modern rock hit, and that, that happens sure. with certain types of music. Okay. I do want to mention Cradle of Love, a song that I first heard from a Weird Al polka song. Poke he, My Eyes Out? Mm-hmm. Poke My Eyes Out is one of his best. If you have a chance... Anyone who hasn't heard the Pokemon's out that featured this, and I think I Touch Myself was on. I, I was think one so. Of them. And I mean, it was like MC Hammer, Vanilla Ice. That Weird Al album was outstanding that, that year. Might have been my first album. You know, Black Crows, mm-hmm. first album which featured She Talks to Angels and Hard to Handle. Yep. And the album was Shake Your Money Maker, and that was 1990, okay. and that was my first album. Okay. That album ushered me into. Music that wasn't chart-based, uh-huh. and I know that it was my older cousin who got me into it, but that album was phenomenal, and I still think it stands up. Really? You familiar? Just with the singles. Okay. It's a hell of an album, yeah. and the, the second album was even better. Okay. Southern Harmony Musical Companion. Which one's the one with the airbrushed-out pubic hair and the... That was the third or fourth album. Okay. Yeah, the All cover, right. the penthouse cover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that. Um I don't remember why I was bringing that up. First albums. First albums, yeah. correct. That was the first album I went to the music store and I bought and I had to talk about Al Gore's parental advisory sticker that was an attempt by Al Gore's wife yep. to shame the music industry into being cleaner, uh-huh. but ended up only increasing sales for naughty albums because it was seen as a badge of honor. Yeah. If, if I remember correctly, some of the reports were Albums got dirtier in order to get that specific sticker so that it would sell better. Nice. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about our first number one song of the month. And that is Sinead O'Connor with the song Emperor's New Clothes. And it was on top of the charts for one week. 
This is the second single from her blockbuster album, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got. The previous single was Nothing Compares to You. Prince. Yeah, which is actually sitting on top of the Hot 100 right now at the same exact time. So she's dominating. And we just talked about Sinead O'Connor two episodes back, and I don't really want to rehash all of it. You know, if you're interested, go listen to that episode instead. I did, and it's a terrific episode. Okay, well, fantastic. But I've been thinking a lot about Sinead O'Connor since I recorded that previous episode, and, you know, I thought maybe we could talk about some of that, some of my thoughts I've been having. I I would love to hear this, because she is still in the news here and there. Yeah. And she hasn't ever gone away for too long. When I first just dove in a a kind of shallow dive, look in to see what she's up to. Uh, A lot of the news articles that came up, it was basically like, she's gone crazy and she was on Dr. Phil and she recorded some kind of suicide related video on YouTube. You know, this kind of shocking clickbaity type stuff. Yeah. There is a mocking dismissal of her. Yes. She's a political figure. I think she's always been political, but she has been dismissed by the culture and and I think that it's right to give it some more thought. I should mention, though, she has changed her name, and I, she's changed it twice in the last couple of years. She converted to Islam, She yes. did. She recently converted to Islam, and I know she changed it to Magda Davit, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and then after she converted to Islam, she changed her first name again. Shuhada Davit? That okay. looks about right. We're going to keep calling her Sinead O'Connor, though, for the purposes of this podcast, because that's the name she went by when she recorded the music we're listening to. Fair enough. And uh, I know how to pronounce that name pretty well. No disrespect. Right. Yes. But one of the reasons I started digging a little deeper and thinking a little deeper about Sinead O'Connor was because I was listening to a podcast about Lorena Bobbitt. Another figure whose story is far more complicated than we were led to believe at the time. That's right. My impression as, let's say, a 10-year-old, give or take, was that she was just a completely crazy woman, and she chopped off her husband's penis because she was nuts. Roundly mocked in the media. Yes, absolutely. And I had no idea that she was abused. She was sexually assaulted regularly by her husband at the time. I mean, there there were a lot of other things that make this story more nuanced than I was led to believe. Fascinating documentary on one of the streaming services that came out recently, and it it made a a minor but important splash in the pop culture. She's an advocate for sexual assault survivors now, Mm -hmm. and quite a powerful speaker and advocate at that. Yeah. I think there's some other things where I didn't get the whole picture back in the day. Like, I came away from Tanya Harding with the impression that she herself had assaulted Nancy Kerrigan. Or that she was behind it. Sure. Regardless of what your final verdict is, all of these stories are far more complicated than our culture led us to believe, right? right? Was it 1990 that the congressional hearings for... Anita Hill? Anita Hill was happening? Give or take. Looks to be 1991. The point of you connecting these cultural events around women were that they are all of a piece where the culture is ready to dismiss rather than listen to women who speak out, stand up, or, in Lorena Bobbitt's case, do something more drastic than that, but ultimately are made a mockery of rather than listened to and considered. Right. Yeah, and Sinead O'Connor has really been through it over the course of the last 30 years. Yeah. Yes. And so at this point, I would say for a lot of people, Sinead O'Connor is probably more well-known for her Saturday Night Live appearance. Tearing up with a 
picture of the Pope mm-hmm. than she is for her music. Yes. She has two separate Saturday Night Live incidents, and I, I think I'd like to talk about both of them. Let's get into it. So the first one takes place in May 1990, and she is scheduled to appear on SNL, which makes sense because she's got the number one album in America. And she is notified by cast member Nora Dunn saying, look, I'm going to boycott this episode because I'm protesting the host, Andrew Dice Clay. Who is known, among other things, for his sexism. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And so... Sinead O'Connor gets word, she checks out Andrew Dice Clay's material, and she decides she's going to also boycott the episode. What's the repercussion? The opening skit uh, of the episode featured Andrew Dice Clay going through a uh, It's a Wonderful Life type scenario where he finds Nora Dunn dead. They mocked her? Yeah, her, her legs sticking out underneath... Sinead O'Connor's amplifiers. They toppled over and killed Nora Dunn if Andrew Dice Clay had not shown up and done that episode. Wow. So, tasteless. Definitely tasteless, yeah. And, and also in doubling down. Sure, absolutely. The other thing, though, is as a result of Sinead O'Connor not showing up for SNL, they had to scramble for a last-minute music guest. And they were, I guess, unable to find someone who could do two separate songs? In New York, in the middle of Manhattan, they yeah. couldn't find an artist. Well, so for the maybe the only time, I'm not sure about this, but maybe the only time they had two separate musical guests. One of them was a father-son duo called the Spanic Boys. Okay. The other one they brought in to do one song was a singer named Julie Cruz, who sings the Twin Peaks theme song. Oh, haunting. And had a minor modern rock hit, which we're actually going to hear next episode. Interesting. Did she chart with it? She charted probably because of the SNL episode. Okay. So Sinead O'Connor's boycott is responsible, probably, largely, for Julie Cruz charting on the modern rock charts. Okay. Yeah. Fun fact. Yeah. 1990s fun facts. Okay. But if we skip ahead two years, okay. 1992, the more infamous SNL episode... Sinead O'Connor is on there, and she's performing a cover of Bob Marley's song, War. If I remember correctly, this song was a acapella? Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the song, she held up a picture of the Pope, ripped it up, and said, fight the real enemy? Yeah. Is that right? And I think it was when she hit the lyric of evil. Okay. Is when she held the picture up. Yeah, and this uh, caused quite a stink. And it had, I would say, a major negative impact on Sinead O'Connor's career. And the impression that I got as a 12-year-old was that she, for no reason at all, hates the Pope, who's a pretty good guy, and uh, she basically is just a big jerk. I still don't know exactly what her purposes were Mm -hmm. for tearing up that picture. So she says she was protesting child abuse within the Catholic Church. Yeah, there it is. Specifically, I think, sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, at the time in America, we had no idea. The Catholic Church scandals that we've been privy to for the last roughly 20 years now in this country had already started to roll out in Ireland at that point. Right. And no disrespect to our Catholic comrades and to our listeners. However, she may have had a pertinent point. But, you know, I, I have to say, I really do appreciate you revisiting that because I think it's really important that those of us who grew up at the time, who were privy to that story, understand what was behind it. Agree or disagree with the tactics she was taking, Mm -hmm. she deserves to have that out in the popular conversation. Sure. Yeah. 
Anyway, a couple things about this album. I guess we should actually get into the music. She had some notable help on this album. Carl Wallinger from World Party, Andy Rourke from The Smiths, and Marco Peroni, who worked with Adam Ant. They all lent some support on this album. Okay. Anyway, here we go. One week at the top, Sinead O'Connor with the song The Emperor's New Clothes. driving tune you mean a, a good song to drive down I mean, the highway to well <laughs> a long song to drive down the highway to uh-huh. a song that is a okay. relentlessly driving yeah. beat okay yeah not to start off on a negative note but the first thing that stands out to me with this song is that outro it just goes on and on and on and on the song's a little long and i feel like what is it a minute and a half of little guitar riff and some drums at the end it feels like it yeah. and uh you know, after the song seems like it could be done and it just keeps on going. I don't need that. Cut it down. Make it shorter. I'm no student of music, Mm -hmm. but I am a music appreciator and a self-proclaimed child of the 90s. Right. And I'll say this. I must have heard this song in my past and it made little impression on me. Nothing Compares to You made a huge impression Mm -hmm. on me and remains an impressive song as far as I'm concerned. And I couldn't make the connection between nothing compares to you and this song just in terms of the quality yeah the other song seems like it's on a different level than it really this one. does mm-hmm. production wise this song doesn't f- feel like it has a bridge that is different enough from the rest of the song no, absolutely to, the, uh, to me it really does seem like the verse and the chorus are pretty much doing the same thing it's a change in the rhythm Mm-hmm. The drums but it's, I think the chord structure is the same throughout, which is, you know, not completely uncommon, but it makes the song seem like it needs to do something else to add some interest, and it's not doing that. With a song as simple as this, a three-minute or even faster song mm-hmm. may get the job done, and I do believe this song is something like five and a half minutes long. It's 5.16, yeah. 5.16, yeah. yeah, right. So, I, I again, I, I would also like to say that, you know, I'm not, I'm not walking in here gunning for Sinead O'Connor. Mm-hmm. I'm an appreciator and a kind of a new appreciator, but it surprised me that this was the follow-up single to Nothing Compares to You. Mm-hmm. I will say this, however, the video is outstanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is basically just her dancing on a stage in front of a small crowd. Yeah. And it makes the song better. Mm-hmm. to watch the video. Sure. So I have to ask myself how much of the song being a successful single was a result of a push on MTV. Sure. Whereas nothing compares to you as far as I'm concerned stands on its own. Although that's also a compelling video to watch, which Absolutely. is just like what a close-up of her face. Right. But she has a striking face. You striking. Know? But yes, I agree. As a song, it's not my favorite. And the fact that it hit number one seems more like it's riding on the tails of the outstanding nothing compares to you i would agree yeah all right so only one week at the top though and uh the next band midnight oil who we just talked about last episode is back on top for one more week with a new song last episode we heard blue sky mine i wasn't cool enough to listen to midnight oil 
when I was in fifth grade, but nope. there were a few kids who had older siblings who were really cool, who were Midnight Oil fans. Okay. And so I always kind of put them on a pedestal. And it's a pleasure to get into it now because now that I found out what they were doing as a band and how political they were and how hard they rock mm -hmm. sometimes, yep. I'm impressed by them. And I know this isn't the song we're talking about this episode, but listening to Blue Sky Mine, yes. it really feels like it's in the tradition of like a Billy Bragg, mm -hmm. like it's a story about workers and the faith that they put into the job that doesn't care about them at all. Right. Fascinating. I'm sure you covered all this last episode, but uh, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So we're going to hear a new number one from Midnight Oil called Forgotten Years. This is the second single from Midnight Oil's seventh studio album, Blue Sky Mining. It is their second consecutive modern rock number one, and it is their third consecutive number one album in Australia. Midnight Oil, we've mentioned, they are sometimes known as a political band, or at least they frequently have political content in their lyrics. Uh, I think maybe their most well-known hit is Beds Are Burning, which is about Aboriginal rights in Australia and land, giving land, land right, land theft, giving land back to the people who owned it originally, I guess. Famously stepping out on stage, playing the uh, Sydney Olympics uh -huh. with shirts that said sorry on them and then singing beds are burning as a public apology to the aboriginal people of australia yeah specifically in response to the prime minister refusing to apologize and he famously said afterwards something paraphrasing something to the effect of they shouldn't bring politics into sport okay. at the olympics yeah sharp yeah a sharp statement uh-huh yeah okay so Let's just listen to it and we'll talk about it. Great. Okay. Uh, here we go. Midnight Oil, Forgotten Years. These should not be forgotten years. Still it aches like tetanus. It reeks of politics. How many dreams remain? This is a feeling to strive to contain. The hardest years, the darkest years, the roaring years, the fallen years. Forgotten Years. Boom. What's your take? It's an anthem. Yep. And it is not outside of the oeuvre of Midnight Oil. Mm -hmm. I don't love this song. I, I like it just fine. Uh -huh. Maybe I'm driving through the Midwest, wind in my hair, uh -huh. sunny day, yeah. and I'm feeling free, and this song comes on the radio, but I don't think I'm queuing it up. Okay, yeah. I'm not sure what they're trying to say in the song. Tell I, me uh, what do you think. I like it. I think the first time I heard it, I probably said shrug pub rock mm -hmm. but i do like it more the more i've heard it lyrically it seems to me like it is a tribute to australian war vets oh i see of world war one or you know later i think they're saying like hey we've kind of got it easy in some ways and our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents we won't forget they, the sacrifices yeah, that they made right they gave a lot uh, so that we wouldn't have to have our shores invaded. Yep. Which, you know, is kind of a cool take because I think, generally speaking, any song that smacks of rah-rah patriotism is kind of a turnoff for me. Yeah. This song doesn't feel like it's lending itself to 
jingoism. Right. It feels hopeful in the sense that, you know, we could put the guns down because we're done with that now. That is not a drive to further war. Yeah, I like that we can support and recognize our vets without saying war rules. Let's have more of that. Yes. Yes. Let's go kill that enemy that we've decided we hate. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think that now that I've begun watching the video, that the song does take on a different tone. Uh, And I wish I had watched the video prior because I think it gives some context for the song and it improves the read of the song. Which is interesting to me because there's a lot of videos that make songs worse. Sure. I would say maybe even more often than not. I wonder to what extent songs were being made knowing that there was going to be an accompanying video. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, at this point, MTV was such a force in the culture yeah. that you had to assume that there was going to be two or three singles on each album that was going to be identified and there was going to be a, an accompanying visual film. So I think that it's fair in 1990 in a retrospective. I think it's fair to watch the video yeah, and to see what else the video adds to the reading of the song. While at the same time, I don't frequently mention the videos because this is an audio format. So I can't throw a video clip onto a podcast. Can't happen. Yeah. Can't happen. We're not there technologically yet. Once we get those implants, that'll be sweet. If you would like to see the technology introduced into this podcast, leave a positive review on Apple Review Podcast. That's This Is Modern Rock with Will Westerkow. That's right. I could see that if I had been listening to this song at an impressionable point in my life, Mm -hmm. when I was particularly sensitive to a politics that this spoke to, this would be an anthem for me. Yeah. At this point, it sounds a little corny, uh-huh. but I wouldn't blame anybody for really digging this song. If they were a kid in 1990 and they were pumping their fists to this song, I say, right on to you. Do you feel like this is a song that you could uh, share with your war vet grandfather and try to like get him to appreciate new music? I think my grandfather would lament uh, the ending of the Lindy Hop okay. and where the <laughs> culture has brought us to. I yeah. don't know if Midnight Oil would be his bag. All right. <laughs> Your grandfather is uh, Montgomery Burns. <laughs> Correct. <Yeah. laughs> okay, so so one week on top for Shinya O'Connor, one week on top for Midnight Oil. The next week, we've got a new number one, finally from a band we have not featured on this show before. And the band is called The Sundays. They were formed in 1987 or 88, Uh, They got together through a demo tape. They got them a gig. The gig happened to be seen by some reviewers for some big music magazines, which sparked a bidding war, and it all happened pretty quickly for them. When I hear stories like that, I don't know if I I hate them. This jealous part of me, (laughs) like, what the heck? Or if I I go like, ah, that's that's amazing. That's an incredible story. Start a new band. We barely knew how to play. Play our first gig ever. Someone sees it. Record deal. Boom. I mean, if you had the voice like the uh, front woman of the Sundays, mm-hmm. we all might have blown up okay. a lot fast. I mean, yeah. she, she her voice is... We can't be jealous because we're not Harriet Wheeler. That's it. Harriet Wheeler's voice is something to behold. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the bidding war happened around them because she had the voice and they had some songs, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to hear a song called Here's Where the Story Ends. It actually reached number seven on the UK charts in 1998 through a cover version by a band called Tin Tin Out, which I've never heard of, but it's always weird to me when your song is a bigger hit when someone else covers it. Nothing compares to you. Yep. Yeah. That's two of them this episode. Yeah. I wonder if uh, Forgotten Years was ever covered (laughs) by... A band that that made it bigger and more palatable. Yeah. Who's hot right now? Paula Abdul. Paula Abdul. 
who's hot right now? Paula Abdul. That's what I say. When, when I ask the kids what they're listening to, they often say, Paula Abdul. Yeah. Yeah. I meant I who's hot right now in May 1990. Oh, got it. But yeah. All right. I would not have the slightest clue who's hot right now in uh, whatever year we're in. I give a hint. Paula Abdul. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's making her comeback. She's never her, gone away. MC Scat Cat. MC Scat Cat. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is the Sunday's debut album, which is embarrassingly called Reading, Writing, and Arithmetic. They're from Reading. Ooh, it's spelled I gotcha. Reading. I thought you mispronounced that. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I would think that most Americans would read the album title as Reading, Writing, and Arithmetic. Indeed. And then go, that's dumb. They're from Reading, which is spelled Reading. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So... <laughs> <laughs> Boo. Yeah. Yeah. But this was their second single off the album. It was their biggest single ever. Oddly, it was never released as a single in the UK because their record label Rough Trade had collapsed and uh was filing for bankruptcy by 1991. Wow. So they made it in America. Yeah. But they didn't necessarily hit in the UK. Mm-hmm. All right. Everything happened backwards for this band. Mm-hmm. They got signed before they even really had established themselves, and then they made it in America before they made it in their hometown. Yeah, and then uh, some other band, Tin Tin Out, mm-hmm. had a bigger hit for them. And then they got the what the royalty, the publishing rights, or the whatever that the payments are for that. Probably. Well, God bless this band. Mm-hmm. Boy, did they get lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well. Let's listen to it. Here's the Sundays with Here's Where the Story Ends. Even though I had never heard this song before, it brought me screaming back to my 13, 14-year-old self. Pre-Rage Against the Machine, Mm -hmm. rewiring my brain, I definitely dug stuff like this, and I felt like this song was a warm breeze. Uh I felt like this song was a summer day. It's a good description. There were some unexpected turns. Her vocal stylings sometimes went up, and when I expected them to go down, Uh she zagged instead of zigged, nice. it left me with a positive impression, just a warm feeling. Yeah. I don't know that it's a substantial song. Right. Whatever the producers were deciding to do with the guitar, with like the, the mix of the kind of the acoustic strumming and her voice seemed to mix really well. And uh, I thought it was just a really well put together, really well produced piece of distinctive pop. Mm-hmm. I like the song, but it's, you know, if it was on anywhere as I walked by I go like oh yeah you know that's nice and it's catchy and it's memorable but I I'm never ever gonna go I really want to hear the Sundays right now because I am connecting on some emotional level with this you know it's interesting while I like her voice a lot her voice feels like more of an instrument in the song Mm -hmm. than a front woman who is sure, yeah, yeah. taking front and center above the instrumentation. I, I agree. It's a it's a good song, and uh, it's pleasant to listen to. I feel like that song is very much of its time, mm-hmm. that there is nothing out right now that is even really reminiscent of that. It, definitely not on the pop charts, I'm like assuming. Currently? Currently. Oh, I don't think so. And it can sound really dated, but it is very specifically of a time when... 
female vocalists were styling themselves in that fashion. In the uh, who's the singer of Ten Thousand Maniacs? Natalie Merchant. Natalie Merchant. I mean, they have very different voices. Natalie Merchant has kind of a richer voice. Harriet Wheeler's got a thinner voice. It's like wispier, a little wispier, sure, but definitely evocative. Mm -hmm. Very specific feelings. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, one week on top of the charts. (laughs) Fair enough. A lot of a lot of one week wonders (laughs) here. That's right. Yep. Which means we have to look a little lower on the charts, and uh, we're going to go to a number two hit. And this is by a band called The House of Love. I've never heard of The House of Love before this episode. I hadn't heard of them prior to a few years ago. And um, when I, I started listening to them, I fell for them pretty hard. So I'm a, I'm a House of Love fan. I've mentioned that before on the show. They're an English band. They were founded in 1986. Uh, so we're going to hear a song called I Don't Know Why I Love You. And it's the second single from House of Love's second self-titled album. For some reason, they decided to continue with the self-titled album after the first one. It's confidence Mm -hmm. for you. Sometimes it's referred to as the Butterfly album because it has a butterfly on the front. Mm -hmm. How's the critical reception at the time of this album? Pretty hot. Pretty good critical reception. Their first album, they did well in like the British indie sphere. Mm -hmm. And then this was kind of uh, their breakthrough album where they started actually placing some, some songs on the British charts. Okay. And they didn't think it performed as well as it should. Oh, they had things to say about... My impression is that they felt they were great and deserved to be appreciated. Was it the public that didn't appreciate them or was it the management that didn't push them properly? Right. Ah. So the House of Love felt that even though the album performed okay and the songs charted... They thought it deserved to chart much better and sell a lot better than it did. And they thought that that was a problem with their record label not pushing the album as hard as they could. greedy record labels. Yeah. You'd think the record label would want it to sell as much as it could. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And really, this is a very strong album. You know, maybe I'm biased because I'm a a big fan of the band. So why are you a fan of this band? What is the quality that gets you hooked? I don't know. I just like the songs. I think they sound moody and somehow kind of romantic. I was going to say that this was the band that reminded me the most of any band we listened to this week of a specific type of 80s Brit rock. Mm -hmm. It is a darkness and a seriousness. Yes. And also a production value. This band reminded me of kind of these male-fronted British bands of the 80s. So Exactly. So they do sound similar to a number of British guitar bands from Mm -hmm. the 80s. And these guys came a little too late. I think that's their biggest problem. Got it. So by the time they showed up with their first album, I think which was in 1988... uh, The wave had crested. The wave had crested, exactly. Okay. That's part of the problem. Uh, Maybe, you know, the record label mismanaging things is part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Maybe inter-band tension is part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So... This was kind of their commercial peak, and they had other singles that charted after this, but they never quite realized their potential as far as selling albums and and, uh, really finding an audience for themselves. Yeah, I do want to say this, though. So this is the only single off of this album to chart on the modern rock charts. I think that's totally insane. They had four singles off this album. Uh They all should have charted. (laughs) That good. You're giving them a push. Well, so I actually don't know that they were released in America as singles. Okay. So that could explain why only one of them charted. Okay. But yes, absolutely. I think this song is great. 
we'll hear it. Shine On, all you listeners out there, if you've not heard Shine On, you should know that song. It's really good, and it definitely deserved to have been a modern rock hit. And then Beatles and the Stones. That's a great song. This album is good. Did you hear Beatles and Stones? Yeah, no, I think the Beatles and Stones is a great song. It's a great song. Yeah. There's good stuff on here. I'm into it. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know, whatever. I'm just blabbering at this point. I've I've talked too much and it's gotten too late. (laughs) It's getting late. (laughs) So, why don't we just listen to it? Here's I Don't Know Why I Love You from The House of Love. rock and roll yeah it had a pretty guitar behind it the whole time i mean Mm -hmm. the the lead guitarist he's you know i don't know what to say other than like it's a pretty sound that he's playing it doesn't sound show-offy it almost has a bit of a drone to it too but somehow it sounds compelling yeah no it's a fairly hard driving song and it's a real pop rock song yeah but with a slightly slightly dark twist sure you know it's not like gloom and doom but it's not and I love you song. It's no, a, it's not. It's a, I don't know why I love you song. Yep. Which is kind of fun. Doesn't surprise me at all that it charted. I don't know if the first time I heard this, if I would go like, yes, that's a hit song and I'm in love with this song and I want to go find out more about the House of Love. But I heard it a second time and I liked it more. And I feel like this is a song that doesn't get old for me. And every time I listen to it, there's more things I can appreciate that I didn't hear before. I agree. It's got layers to it. And, um, it's stuck in my ear the fourth time I listened to it. It I was walking around the house singing the refrain and then I was singing it to my wife. And then she started asking me why I was singing that song to her. And I just sang it to her louder Yeah, because that's the nature of the relationship dynamic in my house. Nice. But it's a song that does grow on you and it doesn't great the more you listen to it right it gets more attractive yeah when i listened to this album i found it remarkably consistent Mm -hmm. and thoughtful yeah yep so terry bickers the guitar he left the band midway through the tour for this album they kept going as a band and they actually have a number of really good singles after this point on subsequent albums but i think they do kind of lose that guitar shimmeriness I like that, the shimmer. The thing that strikes me about this song is the texture. The drums are a particular texture. The guitars are a particular texture. The harmony is a particular texture. And they are distinct and they blend well, but they are distinct from each other. And that shimmery guitar you continue to reference, I think that's the term for it. And it, it really adds a quality to the song that were that guitar not there, it would be truly a far less remarkable song. Yeah, and... uh I just like to say, I think getting to number two on the charts is pretty impressive for a song that's kind of a grower. Yeah. You know, usually uh, if it takes it takes three or four listens before something really sinks in, it's too many listens. Well, that begs the question. Is the, One of the themes for this episode, it begs the question, was there an accompanying video uh-huh. that helped this song get a push? I got to say, I think watching the video makes me less inclined to want to listen to the band. The video is far less remarkable than the song. The the video really does put a stank on the song, and it makes the song worse. I mean, that could be part of the reason why they didn't really blow up, too. You know, 
their look is not compelling like it is for some other artists. I mean, even the fact that he, what he's got this polka dot shirt, he's sitting while he's singing. It's not dynamic. It's not making me get interested in the band. These guys don't stand out. No, I think what you're what, exactly is that where you're going with this? exactly. And I think musically they do, but when you watch the video, it loses that a little bit. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The video sucks. Yeah. And this is not an episode where all the videos suck. Right. But this one, don't watch the video, listeners. Mm-hmm. Disconnect that implant. Disconnect that the implant. Have. Take off your Google Glass. As far as May 1990 is concerned, the thing that strikes me particularly about, well, all four of the songs we listened to today were that these are all songs that were fairly earnest mm-hmm. or incredibly earnest. I think Sinead O'Connor and Midnight Oil... Uh, those songs were political and personal and serious, and I think that there was no other way to read them than serious, and right. I think you can argue about the quality of the songs, but I, you know, it's just interesting to me when I was looking at this time period, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles into Pretty Woman, mm-hmm. and MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice yep. and Paula Abdul, and then you've got these songs on the modern rock chart. I mean, these college kids in 1990... They were really feeling their feelings, yeah, and they were feeling it through these artists, and these artists were speaking to sensitivity and political awareness, and it's striking to me when I look at the contrast between like the pop culture of the time and the modern rock of the time and also the pop culture of today. Well said. Thanks. That's what I bring you on the show for, to express the things that I feel but can't say. If you like the show... Leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show out immensely. If you don't enjoy the show, don't tell nobody. Yeah. If you enjoy the show, or if you have questions, you can contact me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye.